Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcaster. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Dan Goldman. I'm a professor of physics at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia, in the USA. Thanks for joining us. Um, I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories that makes you interested in science or technology and trigger your interest where you are today? Yeah, sure. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was obsessed with um, herpetology, lizards and snakes in particular, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say until the age of 13 or 14. And I kept lots of different kinds of lizards and, and a few snakes. And I studied them and, and even did measurements on them and was just in love and obsessed with with such creatures. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I get a little bit older, I started to learn about uh, physics in particular. I, somebody gave me a book on relativity, and that uh, really sparked my interest in the physics side of things. That's interesting. So I would like to go back. What is the first intelligence system you built, and what the feeling you had, if you remember? Okay, well, I wouldn't say it was so intelligent, but the first robot I ever built, and this is now you're, you're forcing me to remember many years back, was a kit-type robot, uh, and I don't remember what it was called, but it was a little circular robot with wheels, and I had to solder the whole thing up and, and put on, uh, uh, yeah, I guess I just had to solder it up and maybe even try to program it from my Apple II computer. But that's a hazy memory. I just remember soldering for, for weeks to get that thing. Because I'd never, I'd never soldered before. I was probably, you know, yeah. I don't know, 11, 12. Yeah. But it was a little robot. I wish I could remember the kind of kid it was. Great. So if I ask you in this, in this journey, what was the most beautiful and profound equation that inspires you? Oof. Beautiful and profound equation, and, and you know, in physics, we we are kind of given uh, the canon of, of various equations which we deem fundamental: Maxwell's equation, Schrödinger equation, the equations of relativity, um, and those are all beautiful indeed for me. Um, and in fact, I think that one of the first equations I ever saw was Lorentz uh, time contraction equation, and that's what I think really got me interested in. in weirdness of physics but as I was saying I'm an experimentalist at heart uh, and physics were basically divided into experimentalists and theorists uh, and robotics that tends not to be the case so much uh, but in physics it kind of happened about 100, 150 years ago uh, where folks who do experiments basically do experiments and folks who do theory basically do theory with some overlap um, and, and so I tend to default towards beauty in experiments and a number of the experimental apparatus uh, and, and, and experimental systems I've worked on, I've thought were rather uh, beautiful, mm-hmm. including, let's say, uh, shaking granular material, 
system that I worked on as a PhD student and my own students' uh, systems, which are fully automated uh, robots, which control robots. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting because we will go back to this point. You do modeling as well, so I think that's something yeah, we can yeah. cover later because it's interesting sure. what you say. But before that, I would like to ask you how you would define soft robotics from your experience, just a general perspective from your work. How you define? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And I don't consider myself a, a soft roboticist. Again, I'm a physicist who mm -hmm. likes to study uh, organisms largely and then make robot models of the organisms to try to learn something about the natural world. And I will say that, that every organism we study is certainly a mixture of parts that uh, are, are rigid upon contact and parts that have some compliance and give. Uh, and I would say that's probably a very broad definition of soft robotics, whether the components can, can give and move um, upon what I'll say sort of is normal uh, interaction forces. <clears throat> and the analogy I make here is that there's something in physics now called soft condensed matter physics, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to hard condensed matter physics. Hard condensed matter physics tends to be associated with, with properties, electronic properties of, of materials, crystalline materials, for example, uh, where soft condensed matter physics tends to deal with things like gels and toothpastes and colloidal systems, systems that can can displace large amounts uh, upon kind of normal human scale interactions. And I sort of see soft robotics in a similar way. Mm. So before going to your research focus on soft robotics, I, I'm curious to ask yeah. you, what is maybe the most inspiring living creature you have ever seen? And you think it's very interesting for you. <laughs> the most inspiring living creature well, I mean, I have to say that one of the creatures we've spent a lot of time uh, studying <clears throat> is a little lizard mm. called a sandfish lizard, uh, which is an amazing animal in that it is able to run on the surface of sand with four limbs and using, using limb sequencing, not unlike uh, any other four-legged organism. But when it wants to, when it wants to get away, or when it wants to escape uh, to the ground, it basically turns itself into uh, an undulatory locomotor using its body and to propel itself into the ground. And so we've spent a lot of time studying the organism and making models of it. And I guess since it's been so good to us, I'd have to say that's the most inspiring animal to mm. me. So if you can tell us more in detail, what is your research focus now relates to robotics and what are the challenges you have already? Yeah, so in my group, we, we have pretty diverse uh, uh, interests, including the kind of basic biomechanics of organism movement, organism behaviors like crawling, running, slithering, um, and we tend to focus on, on those situations where the organisms are presented with interesting terrestrial environmental challenges, whether they do soft flowing materials or materials where there's uh, lots of obstacles in the way or lots of gaps. Uh, imagine a snake trying to slither through a bunch of uh, uh, gaps in, in, in terrain. 
Um, we tend to make models of those, mm -hmm. uh, and those models are what look like robots, but again, for us, we, we think of them as physical models of the organisms. Um, and we also tend to uh, just study them, study now the robots, because we can make so many interesting kinds of robots, um, because the advent of additive manufacturing and all the incredible low-cost controllers and, and, uh, and motors that are now off-the-shelf available, um, we can get very creative and design robots with morphologies and controls which intend to model aspects of living systems, but even those which are just totally you know, strange physics-inspired systems. Uh, so, for example, right now we have a project where we're trying to mimic um, aspects of Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, using a robot which drives on a large, soft uh, spandex membrane. Um, and we're actually able to, uh, in collaboration with an uh, expert on relativity, link the robot's dynamics to those of geodesic motion in interesting space-times. Um, and so uh, we, we, in terms of our robotics interest, it spans from really trying to interrogate aspects of living systems to just playing with robots uh, and self-propelled systems as interesting dynamical systems and, and discovering new phenomena. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting you said about modeling, because I think I would like to ask you, modeling is somehow hard to explain the physics of system. And when you do the model, which level you go for? It is like the micro scale mm. or just right. the macro scale? And how, which parameter do you think is very interesting and makes a significant uh, explanation where you have an experiment? How you manage to do that? Oh, that's a great question. In fact, that gets to the heart of what it means to make a model. And, you know, there's a famous uh, quote, I guess it's attributed to the statistician box, all models are wrong and some models are useful. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's, you know, we kind of live with that. And that's especially, that's especially mm -hmm. true when you're trying to model something as complicated uh, and as multifunctional as a living system, you know, try to model a, a sand swimming lizard. And part of the art of this, and I think this is what physicists tend to do pretty well, is to, to kind of arrogantly say, well, I'm going to ignore all the complexity mm. and just strip it down to the most essential and just pretend that I can learn something about the real system by studying this cartoon. And amazingly, sometimes that works. So, you know, you might say, well, I'm going to try to understand how that little sand swimming lizard can move effectively in sand. So what I'm going to do is I'm either going to turn it to a 12 servo motor robot or I'm going to turn it into a mathematical line and I'm going to compute forces on that line or <clears throat> send my robot into a bunch of uh, grains, which aren't grains, which are basically just big plastic particles. And I'm going to then vary parameters in my model and see if when I vary parameters, the, the model's predictions are in accord with what I measure experimentally. And if that's the case, then we believe we have a reasonable We've captured some of the essence of the organism. Uh, and then the fun is then to take that model and input parameters, which you haven't yet studied in the living system, um, and see if you can predict something about what the living system does. So, for example, in our sandstone lizard, we found that basically we could use our models to predict the kind of muscle activation pattern that the little lizard uh, uses when it's swimming in sand. Uh, and it turned out to, to 
be in reasonable accord with the experimentally measured muscle activation patterns. So that's kind of the fun mm. of a model of an organism. And then, as I said, part of what we call, you know, kind of this physics meets robotics or robophysics is that basically we just say, well, I don't really care that it's a robot that could do anything important in the real world. I'm just going to study it as an interesting dynamical system. And we've had a lot of fun with that uh, in the sense that I can just take that robot and do things that why would you ever do it? For example, send the robot, a snake-like robot, an undulatory robot, uh, through a bunch of uh, rigid posts and just in open loop see where it comes out after it's gone through the posts. And one of the fun surprises is that that robot basically ends up acting somewhere between a particle and a wave, something, a kind of a kind of system one, one uh, studies a lot in the physics of the very small called quantum mechanics, and we can mimic certain aspects of it with a robot. So that's kind of a broad answer. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And I'm curious to ask you, have you ever think about integrating maybe from micro level to continuum level? Do you think that I'm interested to understand this in this is smallest yeah. level, and this is in the larger scale. Do you think you can think about something integrating both the scales of modeling, mm -hmm. or this is complex? Uh, yeah, no, this is a great. That's another. That's a great question, and you know, I. How shall I say this? As a physicist, I models with lots of parameters tend to scare me, mm. um, and and that's just because I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but somehow the human has less control over what's going into the model, and, and you basically can start to, to start to overfit. You can find any phenomena that you care to find by twiddling parameters in your model. So those those models tend to scare me. Uh, so then it becomes a problem. Well, how if I let's say I want to understand that little lizard, you know, I want to understand really how the muscles are conspiring to generate the particular dynamics that I see. The muscles have, you know, plenty of interesting dynamics in their own right, and certainly it takes more than a few parameters to describe all that. How do you go about integrating these things? Uh, and it's an art, and one of the, uh, and, a, and a philosophy, and one of the philosophies, I guess, if we have a philosophy we follow, would be that try to understand the high-level dynamics first. <clears throat> the, the, let's say how a, a wave body bending, traveling down a, uh, a fictitious body generates forces, and then see how uh, predictions of your model at that scale, what they can, what the next level down in the hierarchy has to say, uh, must do in order to generate those dynamics. And so I'll say that this is very hard to do in vertebrates because of how complicated it is to work with vertebrate muscle and, and to interrogate vertebrate muscle. But we are got a couple projects in my lab where we're doing this with uh, non-vertebrate organisms, including uh, little nematode worms, including actually uh, plant roots, uh, where we're actually able to study the mechanics at the you know, whole living system scale. Mm -hmm. um, how does a little nematode worm squirm through arrays of posts and, and the like? And then use our modeling approaches to make predictions on, on how muscle must be activated, and then use new techniques. This is in collaboration with Professor Georgia Tech and Hong Lu. Use new techniques, uh, calcium imaging, uh, and, and in fact, optogenetic techniques, 
to not only image, but to manipulate the microscopic components of the organism to see mm. if we can use our models to see if they're in accord with our models. So it's kind of a process where you, you go step by step down the ladder of complexity, and I don't know where it runs out. That's interesting. So if I ask you what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics, uh, maybe concerns you have, if you have any. Have any concerns? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it, it seems such a new and exciting field that, uh, that, 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 you know, how could one be concerned about such things? I think that, you know, from my own perspective, I, I advocate a certain style and approach, which is, I guess, what we call this robophysics style, mm -hmm. where, where uh, instead of necessarily focusing on a, on a demo, treat the robot as an interesting dynamical system and take good uh, data and try to compare it to a model to try to understand uh, aspects of the dynamics. But that, that's just one approach. That's just my approach that I favor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would like to ask you, do you think as a researchers, we have to fully understand the physics behind a smart material? And I'm asking this question because we witness sometimes we use traditional control techniques for smart materials sometimes, mm -hmm. and maybe it's destroying the natural dynamics sometimes. But mm -hmm. do you think it is necessary to fully understand how this material behaves in, in terms of physics? Can you give me an example? Because that sounds very interesting. The, my gut reaction would be say, no, we, we, mm. we do lots of things all the time, not understanding actually what we're yeah. doing or what our material okay. properties are. But, but tell me more about what you mean by that. Okay. For example, nonlinearities can bring opportunities of robotics like buckling. However, yeah. do you think maybe traditional control approaches destroy the natural dynamics of the soft robot? And that comes down. You don't understand, maybe, that's why I'm asking, do you think we have to fully understand deeply how this material behaves in physics so that we can consider how we can behave with them and give them the opportunity, intrinsic opportunity they have already to be manifested in performance? Hmm. It's a great question, and I wish I were enough of an expert on control to really give you a good answer. <clears throat> I would say that, you know, I'm just thinking of one of my postdocs in my group's work uh, right now, I would say that in some sense, one of the joys of these soft robotics is that the soft components basically uh, mitigate. You know, I think one of the issues, one of the nice things that soft robotics brings, is this this in some way kind of blending of the robot with the environment. You're no longer always fighting the environment with rigid components and perfect controllers. Uh, you're letting some of the like you say, the nonlinearities, I might even say the imperfection or the extra compliances mm. in the robot basically <clears throat> help dictate performance uh, in the environment. And one of my favorite examples of this is one that uh, my uh, postdoc Yasmin Oskaniden uh, has been working on. She had a paper accepted to RoboSoft this year, um, which is basically a, a myriapod robot, a multi-leg centipede-like robot, which she basically using kind of clever design of modules hooked up a bunch of legged modules to each other and and then using some interesting control schemes kind of geometric control schemes uh was able to generate and, and control a you know, 14 legged robot uh, and and using some 
soft compliant limbs of a clever design was able to then let that robot which was pretty good moving over hard ground just with one little mechanical change move quite well over a diversity of terrain including uh, leaf litter and, and rocks and boulders with in totally open loop and and then really the thing that, that actually catapulted its performance um, even greater was the judicious addition of soft compliant elements along its body and that combination of things basically leads to a robot that an open loop can go almost in anywhere in any terrestrial environment it's quite impressive uh, and that's you know the nice thing is that in some senses uh, we don't understand basically how it's doing it from some fundamental way and so i would say that you know uh, one can get a whole lot of uh, mileage out of uh, uh, just creatively playing with devices experimenting with devices and, and discovering in some sense new phenomena Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Which I'm counting these these as. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, if I ask you to to which level the developed soft robotics are intelligent, and from your experience, do you think that we have to reach a level that the material can internally compute the energies and and actions like actuation and sensing? How do you see this intelligence soft robotics so far? Well, I don't know. That, that again, is a huge question. I will say that, that the nice thing about the soft robotics and what it's doing, I think it's really bringing this idea of the, the you know, embodiment that has been talked about and, mm -hmm. and physical intelligence into the real world that, in a way that I think is very hard with more traditionally well-controlled, hard-component robotics. I think so that the intelligence, that a lot of the intelligence of the robot comes in the mechanical form. And, you know, one of the one of the ancestors to this is I think of uh, the work of Mark Koski, who you know years ago, this is, I first saw this when I was a postdoc in the, in the early 2000s, was making these little cockroach-like robots with basically a mixture of hard and soft components, and they could go really fast over a diversity of environments. Um, and it was because they had instantiated the, the brains and in, in not only in the controller but in the mechanics. Uh, that it was so good. I think that the Rex class robots have a similar flavor. And so I think that the advent of all these cool materials, cool sensors and soft robotics um, is really going to to allow people to to get away from, you know, the, uh, the uh, highly constrained closed loop types of control and, and, and really put the control into the, the morphology and the mm -hmm. components, and I think that's that simplifies all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, if I ask you, what do you think may be the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics, uh, from your experience, in a short term and a yeah. longer term? Yeah. Again, you know, my my real entree into soft robotics has been through my colleague Frank Hammond, Professor Frank Hammond at Georgia Tech, um, and we, and along with the same postdoc I mentioned, Yasmin Oskaniden, <clears throat> had been had been trying to make a soft worm robot. And in terms of, uh, okay, so that's an interesting story because we thought, well, we'll just like everybody else make a peristaltically moving robot, and it'll vary, and we'll be done, and, and it'll be able to go in the soil. And of course, that doesn't work. Uh, 
turns out that earthworm burial into soil is an incredibly challenging problem. And biologically, we're only beginning to learn the secrets of the earthworms and how they do such things. Uh, and I'll give you a hint, it's a lot more than peristalsis. But Yasmin uh, and Frank and their students have been, his students have been trying to make these worm robots now, and we're basically using you know, uh, soft silicone type uh, um, uh, modules, mm -hmm. which uh, we cast and, and design. And it's, we find that, that reproducibility is challenging. You know, to make a same module over and over with the same performance. Um, that's one issue. I'd say the bigger issue thus far I've, I've noticed is just the enormous back end of, of hardware required to um, to deploy these kind of uh, soft robots. So you needed big banks of compressors and pumps and valves to to affect locomotion. So this seems, of course, like something that, and I know lots of people are working on this, that has to be solved. But I would say that the reproducibility for us um, mm. makes it hard to treat these yet as, as physics um, systems to interrogate, to learn the basic principles. I think that's interesting. That's just my personal observation. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So um, if I ask you about um, being working in interdisciplinary fields, how you can overcome challenges of speaking different language. For example, mm -hmm. we have to work with materials science and engineering and mechanics. And this was a challenge, to be honest. But how we can, maybe what's the best recipe, we can overcome the challenges and getting the desired performance at the end of the project. Yeah, I think there's a couple. I think that, you know, it's not just like all things. It's not just learning the language. It's also learning the culture and embedding mm -hmm. yourself in the culture. And so. I think that's important too. So, you know, when I was a graduate student, ending my graduate career over 20 years ago, um, I wanted to uh, move towards biological physics, but I didn't want to work on systems that <clears throat> my peers at the time were, were flocking towards, which were largely single molecule biophysics. Uh, and, and I thought back to my interests in herpetology and lizards and snakes, et cetera, as a kid, and decided I would, you know, try to find something interesting if there was interesting connection to biological physics there. And it turns out that I found a, a mentor at, uh, at UC Berkeley, a guy named Bob Full, who's a very famous biologist that also does cool robotics. Uh, and and I basically embedded myself in in a biology department for three and a half, four years, not only to gain experience, but to really learn the culture and learn the language. And, and it helped that I was, of course, naturally interested in this. But I think that's very important. Um, at the same time, he had to be collaborating with roboticists, Dan Kodachek and Mark Kikoski and Ron Fearing and Al Rizzi. Uh, and, and I started interacting with those folks and I learned some of the language, but I also had to learn some of the culture and what kind of problems were interesting to those folks. Uh, and and so I think that is one of the, if there's a secret, one of the important aspects of interdisciplinary interdisciplinary work is to make a commitment to really embed yourself in the field and and always admit what you don't know, uh, which is everything, basically. <clears throat> and, yeah. and then, you know, ask questions in a reasonable but not obnoxious and annoying way uh, and, and move slowly 
and build a foundation. And I think that seems to be, if there's any secret, that's, those seem to be important uh, aspects to, to working among and across disciplines. Yeah. How can we enable more inclusive culture around the competitive ideas? <laughs> oh, well, again, I don't know none of my ideas. I tend not to have too much combat in my ideas, so I don't know. I think... Um, yeah, but, yeah, but I, 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 if I give more context, for example, in academia, we have yeah. we know already there's a sphere competition to get funds and grants for your, your research, and and that's make maybe we have to get a balance between how we get yeah. compet competition between new different ideas and also to be intellectually inclusive as well. So there's not not only one approach have to be dominated. Yeah, so that's the question. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I don't know really a deep answer to that. I will say from my own perspective, you know, when I was starting in, in what I can now call, what I'm calling, what I'm calling living systems physics, let's say physics living systems. Um, this was when I was first a, uh, first a faculty member back in the mid 2000s, uh, 2007 or so. Mm -hmm. um, there were <clears throat> no physicists for the most part were working on organisms. Um, And so that wasn't necessarily considered biological physics, but it so happened that, that, so in other words, people might say, well, you're not doing physics, you're not doing, you know, and then, so I got those questions. You're not studying, you know, everything was a not, 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 not. Mm. Oh, that's not physics. That's not biological physics. That's not. And, <clears throat> and I think that I happen to find uh, a few and maybe even convince um by not being obnoxious but by trying to trying to make the case that in fact there was this very beautiful and rich phenomena that is indeed interesting physics and interesting science and it doesn't matter what you call it it's perfectly good to study uh and so i think that i and, and that seemed to to work um i think that you have to find this sounds trite but you have to find uh open-minded people who are looking to, to help. And sometimes you have to actually, not in a combative way, but in kind of a more uh, gentle way, try to help convince people and make the case that in fact, this is interesting. And so I, I prefer to see it less as combat and more as, as uh, like you say, inclusivity uh, mm. to, to give people, uh, to kind of show people, well, look, this is pretty cool. Uh, and there's going to be some people which may say, well, no, 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 no. But, but if you persist and you're, you know, not a jerk about it, I think people can, uh, be convinced. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. But I don't know. I only have one, I only have a couple examples and so I would not say I'm an expert. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah so sure. back into, um, your work, I would like to ask you, do you think If there is opportunities for machine learning, do you think can play a role in your future work? Because there is yeah. maybe a hype that all oh, machine learning can solve everything. Of course not. But what, do you think you have imagined anything can be related here? Can be in like morphology design, genetic yeah. designs? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, we've <clears throat> we've taken some steps uh, in that to try to use some lear reinforcement learning techniques to. To, to see if we can optimize various gates. Mm. Um, again, you know, it's one of these things where I, I guess as a physicist or I guess as a, a control freak experimentalist, I like to kind of have some understanding of, of what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> and 
and when I use a tool and I don't yet really understand the, uh, how the, the learning mechanisms do what they do, I will say that they can be helpful, you know, in discovering interesting phenomena. And, and you know, I, I, again, it's all in what your goal is, right? My goal is not necessarily to make a robot that can go anywhere. And so that's, so then I'm not always looking to optimize, right? And so if you're not always looking to optimize, then well, you know, or find novel, great solutions to your design problem, then you may not need a, a learning, you know, a good old human learning can be very useful and, and, you know, subject to your creativity on what phenomenon to study, what to look for. Uh, and so, you know, like anything, I tend not to focus on the tools. I tend to focus on the interesting scientific questions. And thus far, the learning techniques have been useful as tools, I'd say for my group, most, most importantly, uh, as ways to track organisms, um, organism movement. That has been something which is almost revolutionary, I'd say, in the sense mm. that I can now more or less take uh, videos of centipedes with you know, 44 legs, 22 leg pairs, running over flat ground and train uh, neural net type uh, um, tracker. This one we favor something called deep lab cut to basically track all the limbs in the body undulation in you know, the track meaning take, take the image and, and create digitized points mm. um, that we can then analyze. And that's something that we could not do a few years ago. So from that perspective, the learning tools have been incredibly valuable to help us uh, track these things. Um, and I'm sure as they get better, they'll, like any tool, they'll point us to novel, interesting phenomena. Yeah, interesting. But I, but again, it's it's all in my point, in your point of view. You know, yeah. I'm not necessarily interested in in optimizing everything. So whether it solves all control problems, or I have a former student, Ting Nan Zhang, who's now at Google, and mm -hmm. he was showing me some videos of how Google was training their robots to to stand and walk and run, and that seems pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I still won't understand from my human perspective why that works the way it does, but, you know, maybe that won't be important. Yeah. So if I ask you how you can, with your team, ensure that developed robotics in general you have in your lab will be beneficial to humanity as a whole or community. You have a project for four years, five years. How do we make sure this will end up in something meaningful to the community? Well, I don't know how to answer that because I don't know what meaningful means, mm. sadly, right? So what you meaningful know, from your perspective mean? What could be meaningful me? Another great question. Meaningful from my perspective. Meaningful from my perspective is, you know, there's sort of the selfish, is, the, is it interesting to me? And do I find it cool and fun? Okay, then it's meaningful. That's, that's the kind of boring, limited, selfish perspective. Meaningful can also mean, uh, does the community receive it well enough so that my students can get jobs? Mm. Uh, and, and I find that actually probably is my most important uh, uh, practical immediate benefit, right? Science, uh, and I guess engineering, I do because I am curious and I, I love these things. But, you know, from my career point of view, at this stage, it's really, you know, can I work on problems that one, interest me, and two, uh, create um, enough uh, 
uh, excitement and interest that my students and postdocs can can go on and craft careers of their own. Yeah, that's great. and then whether it helps humanity, you know, that's yeah. that's a that's a tall order down the road, and I don't I don't pretend to know anything about that. Yeah, that's a great. So we are closing to the end. We have few questions. Uh, the first one I would okay. like to ask you for your as well as your research. What is something you look up to, like when you're thinking, I want to do that in five years, accomplish that kind of idea? Do you have this kind of thoughts? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, right now, I'd say <clears throat> um, some are well-formed, some are not so well-formed. I would say that, that on the, there's a project right now, which is a whole lot of fun, which again, Yasmin Askanaiden, the same postdoc whom I've now mentioned several times, has been working uh, largely led by a guy at Georgia Tech named Saad Bamla on a very cool project, which is how do groups of worms, specifically black worms, uh, aggregate together to form blobs of 50,000 worms? Uh, and how do those blobs uh, create basically functional units which protect individuals uh, from all sorts of assaults, mechanical, thermal, and chemical, as well as accomplish tasks like feeding the collective. And I see that as a really, you know, from a robotics point of view, and something I think Yasmin's very interested in, uh, as, you know, here, these are entangled blobs, I should add, of, of worms. This really begins to get us towards principles by which we can make robots soft robots that are made of other little robots that come together and create super robot entities, which then dissolve to be individual mm. robots. And, and I begin to see a kind of practical way, leveraging the physics and mechanics that we could start to do this. This has been sort of an obsession of mine, even since I was a graduate student, where in physics we study, I study pattern formation and how, you know, ensembles of lots of little elements can come together to form patterns whose dynamics are emergent, which you can't predict from the individuals. And we're starting to see these kind of things show up in, in, in collections of robots, which can make functionally cool, amorphous sort of soft robots. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of a, a future a problem that's been, that's, from a practical point of view, that's been tickling my brain. I also have some, some kind of obsession with mimicking uh, aspects of what we call modern physics, general relativity, and quantum mechanics using mm. robots, uh, and and so that's the, that's a that's a fun area we're playing with, and probably will for the next five to ten years. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Um, <laughs> uh, yes, of course. One has to have you know uh, an ego, which is basically you know saying that. You know, you have to believe that what you're doing is is interesting to you. And I mean, I think that's what I would I would sort of think of as ego. Mm. Um, you know, that that I think that's the most important thing <clears throat> is that it sounds very trite and boring, but to follow your love and your passion, and and, and to have a belief that that is important to you and to your happiness and functioning. Mm -hmm. and, and it's nice when it's really important to others, but if, I think if you focus on that too much, uh, you, you lose sight of what makes you happy. And, and I think that's, so I think that in that sense of having some self-esteem, uh, 
you know, believing what you're doing is interesting to you, or knowing what you're doing is interesting to you, or maybe better said, actually doing what's interesting to you and finding what's interesting to you mm. is probably the most important thing you can you can look for, honestly, and not trying to look for what's interesting to other people. That's awful, yeah. I agree. I think so. Yeah. I tend to believe that. Yeah. So, if I ask you what is the most important qualities you have gained in this journey since you started your academic career, and you think that's something you can't, <laughs> you have to maintain in your life. Yeah, that that's hard, and particularly now, I mean, these days, this is a terrible time. Mm. <clears throat> I think that for everybody, I think that again, the if you can discover what you really find interesting, uh, and and then you know turn that into your career that at least has worked for me mm. um and, and so you know <clears throat> i think that following fashions and following uh what other people say is interesting and important i think leads to less happiness uh, at least for me than mm. than finding something you're really interested and passionate about and, and pursuing it. And so I found, and, and you know, but, but again, that sounds very uh, Disney, you know, you have to do that with a strong, um, with a strong foundation. So, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm interested in this and I'm going to go study this. You have to put in the work and the time and the training to, 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 to do that. Um, mm. So you need both parts. You need the love of it, but you also need the attention to detail and, Into, um, yeah, that's profound yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know, profound, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, I like it. Yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was life changing for you? Yeah, I, I know this one I can actually answer because it turns out to have sounded trivial at the time, but is mm. is about as true as I could imagine. I've been lucky, and it, it goes along with actually what I was just saying. Uh, when I was a kid, <clears throat> kid, I was going to college. Uh, and I was working in a microbiology lab for the summer, basically just cleaning dishes. Uh, mm. But it was nice. They let me hang around. And there was a lecture series. This was at a place called Virginia Commonwealth University, Richmond, Virginia. And there was a lecture series, and they had big shots come in and give lectures. And one day they had Professor Max Perutz, who had won a Nobel Prize for his analysis and discovery of the structure of hemoglobin, very famous biophysicist, biochemist. Um, and he was very old at the time, or at least he seemed old to me. He gave his lecture, I didn't understand much, but they invited me to the little party, the after party. And I remember being in a room with lots of people, and there was Perutz, it was holding court, and someone said, I guess my boss said, well, this young man is going off to college in the fall, can we give him some advice? And Perutz, I kind of in my head now picture sort of looking like Yoda, uh, very small, very wise, um, leaned over and said, find a good mentor. Wow. And, and that was his advice. <laughs> and, you know, I said, oh, geez, what the hell does that mean? You know, I was 18 years old. It didn't mm. sound particularly important. But now I learned that that is, has been absolutely critical. I was, I was lucky to find a wonderful mentor as an undergraduate to researcher. I'm talking about science now in terms of mentorship. Uh, and then I found a fantastic PhD supervisor who really taught me science. And then a, a fantastic postdoc supervisor. And all of these people have mentored me uh, and, and helped me, you know, 
become scientists uh, and, and introduce me to things I never thought about. Uh, and I learn and try to absorb from them. And so, you know, it sounds trivial and trite, but it goes along with following your passion. Sometimes you can follow your passion without any advice, and it may work well, uh, but if you can follow your passion and find someone who can help guide you and mentor you on that, uh, that uh, it works even better, I think. I think so that's that, what I would say. Yeah, that's very beautiful and also important advice for your life, yeah. I, 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 I think agree. so. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't know if you have any final words you would like to say for Soft Robotics community. you have any final words? No. Okay. Uh, you know, it's been a blast just getting to know people in the Soft Robotics uh, community. You know, I think it's, it's a largely pretty young community. And that's fun because there's all sorts of crazy ideas and mm -hmm. people trying all sorts of crazy stuff. And none of it's too serious. And, and I think that's also fun too. I mean, it's serious in the sense that people are serious about their work, but it's, it's you know, nobody claims to be solving all the great problems of humanity, of uh, at, at least immediately. And, and so I think there's a whole lot of play and discovery. And, and to me, that's the most, personally, that's the most fun part of, of, of yeah. academic research is the, is the formalized play and discovery. And I hope never to lose that. Yeah, thanks so much, so Daniel. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. Thanks well, so much. My pleasure. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's Thank a real you. treat. Thank you. Thank